Welcome to the Lunch Break Bible Study. This is Pastor Frank from Kansas City, Missouri, and we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark. In verse 30 of chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples have just had this very, very interesting uh, interaction with a man who wanted a demon cast out of his son, and the disciples were unable to accomplish that. And there was an interesting discussion we had about what it means when Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer. And we looked at the whole context of that, that whole episode. What was Jesus meaning by that this kind only comes out by prayer? And what we discovered as we looked at that is, is who was praying in that text? It wasn't Jesus. Jesus simply cast out the demon. And it wasn't the disciples because the disciples were unable to cast it out. The person who was praying in that story is the father of the boy. Not merely was he praying that the demon would be cast out, but he went to Jesus and asked Jesus to give him faith, help him in his unbelief. And it's when we go to Jesus in faith that the devil cannot stand against us. When we go to Jesus recognizing that we are poor in spirit and we need him to do the things of God in our lives, that's when the devil cannot live in our hearts. Verse 30, it says that Jesus and the disciples leave that place and go back through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where he and the disciples were because he was teaching. And he said to them in verse 31, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now we on this side of the Easter story know exactly what Jesus is talking about there. And when Mark wrote his gospel, the people who heard it and read it certainly understood what this was about. But in verse 32 it says the disciples did not understand what Jesus was talking about, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And we may wonder, why are they hesitant to ask Jesus what he means by this? Well, because the last time Jesus did this was in, was in the last chapter of Mark, Mark, Mark chapter 8. When Jesus did it the last time, he gets in an argument with Peter and, and calls Peter Satan because Peter does not understand what Jesus is on about here. It's the same pattern that we had back in chapter 8. Jesus prophesies his death and resurrection. The disciples don't understand. And then Jesus continues to... But before I even get into that... Um, I want to talk about this phrase. When Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, I want to talk about this phrase, Son of Man, because I think this is a good way to look at how Jesus is teaching clearly but is not understood by the people around him. And I think it's caught very well and illustrated very well in this phrase, the Son of Man. So let's look back through the Bible and see what, where is this used and what does this mean? If you scan through the Old Testament, the phrase son of man appears mostly in the work of the prophet Ezekiel. When Ezekiel has a vision of God, this is the phrase that is used to address the prophet. And you can see this if you want to look this up. This is Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 17. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. And then verse 18, it says, son of man, tremble as you eat your food and shudder in fear as you drink your water. Say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says about those living in Jerusalem and in the land. They will eat their food in anxiety and drink their water in despair, for their land will be stripped of everything because of the violence of all who live there. So that is the address, that is the title that the Lord gives to the prophet Ezekiel, son of man. 
So it's certainly understood as a prophetic title. When Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, Son of Man, they're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They know the prophet Ezekiel. And that phrase, Son of Man, shows up a lot in Ezekiel as the title of a prophet. So certainly, it's a prophetic title. But in other places in the Old Testament, the term Son of Man is not generally a prophetic title. It really is sort of a title or a a descriptor of people in their very fallen or limited status as human beings. So if you look at Job chapter 25 verse 4, you see this idea of men being very low in status of the universe. Chapter 25 verse 4 of Job, How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? Verse 5, Even if the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, How much less man, who is but a maggot, a son of man, who is only a worm, right? So you have this idea that a son of man is uh, lowly in the eyes of God. And then again in Psalm 144, verse 3, it says, O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? So you have these two uses in the Old Testament of Son of Man. One is a prophetic title, and another is a title given as sort of a signifier of lowliness or low status in the eyes of God. But there are two other places, two places in the Old Testament, where the phrase Son of Man takes on a different meaning. And I think that it's here in these places that we come to understand why Jesus refers to himself in this way. So the first place you have is Psalm 80 verse 15. This is a psalm of uh, of rescue. It says, return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted. Referring, of course, to the nation of Israel. It says, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. And in Psalm 8, I mean, there's a lot of times when this can be true of the nation of Israel, but I think think this one is specifically referring to the people of God living in exile. Verse 17, though, of Psalm chapter 80, it says, Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. So that's a really interesting thing that uh, the psalmist does right there. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself, and then we will not turn away from you. You have this image of God lifting a chosen one, a Messiah character, to elevate the people of God, rescue them from their their plight, and then who will also lead the people back to the right worship of God. So you have it there in Psalm 80, one who brings the people of God back to God. And in Daniel chapter 7, it says this, in verse 13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority. That's all this is the Son of Man. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. 
And all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in both of these passages, Psalm 80 verses 15 through 17, uh, and then Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and following, both of these passages, you have a son of man who is a saving figure, chosen by God. In both images, this son of man is elevated by God into authority and power. In the psalm passage, the Israelites are seen as returning to faithfulness with this figure. And in Daniel, it is all nations and all peoples, not just Israel, who are subject to him. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is bringing all these ideas together. It is Jesus who is a prophet of God like Ezekiel, with a warning of judgment to come for Israel. It is Jesus who has brought lowest of the low, like the picture given in Job, as a worm. And in Psalm 144, as unworthy of God. But it's also Jesus who fulfills the prophecies of Psalm 80 and Daniel 7, restoring the kingdom of God and uniting Jews and Gentiles alike in that kingdom that will never end. The disciples don't understand it at the time, this title, the Son of Man, just like they don't understand what it means that he is going to die and rise again. But Jesus is a prophet who becomes nothing, and will be elevated into an eternal kingdom. And this is exactly what Jesus means when he says he will be killed and will rise. This picture of Son of Man, this title Son of Man, is a prophecy in itself of what is going to happen to Jesus as he lives out his ministry on earth. Now, continuing on in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, it says they come to Capernaum. Now, remember, Capernaum is Jesus's sort of home base for his ministry. Back in Mark chapter 2 verse 1, it said a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Jesus lived in Capernaum as an adult. He was from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but he lived and did, and did his ministry based from Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So he had told them about this, him being the son of man and how he was going to die and rise again. But the disciples didn't ask about that. Instead, they had this little side argument. Jesus, of course, knew what they were doing, but they had this side argument. And Jesus wants them to confess what they had been up to. But verse 34, it says they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Immediately, as soon as Jesus confronts them with this question, they're, they're, they're embarrassed. They're ashamed of themselves. They didn't want to admit that, to Jesus that they were thinking of their status, their own rank in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus, as usual, could have berated his disciples, but instead he chose to teach them. And so sitting down, verse 35, he calls the twelve, he calls the disciples to himself. He says, look, you're arguing about who's greatest, but if anyone wants to be first, he must be very last and the servant of all. Jesus teaches his disciples what it means that he, the Son of Man, will die and rise again. Because it's Jesus who's going to be first in the kingdom of God. There's no doubt about that. Jesus is first in the kingdom of God. And for this reason, he must first become the least of all people. Unjustly murdered and put on public display for his own shame. And to be his disciple means to follow him through that. To take up your cross daily means to humble yourself for the sake of loving your neighbor and to wait for salvation from God. That's what Jesus means by this. If you want to be, if you want to be first, you must be very last and the servant of all. And what really Jesus is doing is commenting on what he means when he says, I am going to die and be raised again. But he has something else to say about the status of his disciples. 
Verse 36, it says, He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, Jesus said to the disciples, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now certainly, on the surface, this means be kind to children, right? Who can argue with that? But remember that this is happening in the context of another conversation. This isn't just Mark saying, oh, and by the way, Jesus once taught us to be nice to kids. Um, This is in the context of him teaching his disciples about what our status is in the kingdom of God. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children. To welcome means to accept and provide hospitality, even as if you would provide hospitality to an honored guest. If you had someone who is who you find especially uh, worthy of honor that comes to your house. You would want to cook for them. You'd want to prepare for them. You'd want to clean the house and welcome them and, and receive them with, with great joy and, and let them know that they're an important, an important person in your life. Um, and you may do that, right? Because this is what Luke chapter 10, verse 8, when Jesus sends his disciples out, he talks about how they may be received. He says, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Right, The idea is that I'm going to send you out and some people may receive you with honor and thanksgiving and would welcome you as honored guests and receive you into their homes and, and, and give you hospitality. He says, receive that and say thank you. Right, uh, Be happy about what you're receiving. And you may be kind to children, but very rarely will you be treat a child as if they were an honored guest, like someone who has achieved some level of greatness. So what is Jesus doing here? He's saying that a servant of the Lord should regard himself as a child when it comes to their own achievements. If we are welcomed and received, it's not because of we of our great status or our wonderful achievements, right? It's because of who we serve. And the focus of our energy and our attention should be the one who sent us. We should not be arguing about how we are honored among God's people, but rather how we can honor Jesus. And Jesus says, whoever welcomes you because you are my servant doesn't just welcome you, they welcome me and welcome indeed the Father who sent him. In verse 38, there comes a ramification for this. Uh, there's There's something that John brings up because he says, now wait a minute, because we're a little concerned now that we may have done something wrong because we are so caught up in our own status. He says, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, Jesus, and we told him to stop because he was not part of us. He was not part of the 12. The context here is that we want to consider ourselves greater than the other person. The disciples considered themselves to be greater than one another, and much more did they consider themselves to be greater than just some random guy, apparently, who's out there casting out demons in Jesus' name. And in verse 39, Jesus continues to teach his disciples about being humble and elevating the name of Jesus rather than themselves. He says, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can, in the next moment, right, turn around and say something bad about me. (laughs) For whoever is not against us is for us. And that's the key here, that Jesus himself is the greatest. And it's his glory for which we are to be concerned. And it's his name which we are to promote, not ourselves and not our own names. If, there's nothing worse in, in, in the life of a, of a church where you have a pastor very, very concerned about their own status and their own office and the way that people treat them and respect them. Um, that, is a, that is a recipe for disaster. 
in a church. We have a, a pastor who's very, very concerned about his own, his own status. Much better for you is a pastor who is concerned entirely about elevating the name of Jesus and honoring his name uh, among God's people. It's a constant temptation because people love their pastors. They, they appreciate what their pastors do for them. They express their, their thanksgiving to God for their pastors. It's a very, very difficult thing to do for pastors is to stay humble, stay grounded in who we actually serve. But a church that is served by a pastor who is interested only in the elevation of Christ among the people and in the world, that is a church that is going to do well for itself because it's not concerned about itself. It's concerned about Jesus. It's going to do well for the kingdom of God. Jesus says in verse 41, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones, remember he's talking about his disciples now. He's got the child in his arms, but the child is an illustration of what it's supposed to be like to be Jesus' disciple. So if he talks about the little ones, he's talking about his disciples. If anyone causes one of these little ones, that is his disciples, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. So you see the contrast here? People who receive you, who accept your teaching as coming from Jesus, are really accepting the one who sent Jesus, that is the Father. If anyone causes a disciple, the the least of the servants of Jesus, who can do nothing but believe, right? If anyone causes someone like that to reject Jesus, he will not be rescued like the boy in the miracle above. That one will receive the fullness of judgment. Now again, you've got another teaching of Jesus that seems a little puzzling here. Um, Why is it here? Why is it part of this conversation? If we remember that this whole thing is about humility, if this whole thing is about elevating Jesus rather than yourself, then it starts to make sense. In, uh, In Mark 9, 43, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed with two hands than to go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So why, what is going on here? Um, why is this teaching right here what does this teaching mean this is all you know if you if you ever read one of those bible studies you know the hard sayings of jesus this is i guarantee you this is going to be in there um what does this have to do with anything and i want you to think about what jesus has been talking about and it's our sense of pride the need for the self to be humbled for the sake of the for the sake of the kingdom to become the least of all to become a servant of all and to follow the example of our Lord Jesus to take up your cross. What Jesus is saying is is that the disciples greatness will come as they are followers of Jesus being made the least among all. What Jesus is doing is he's illustrating how difficult this is for people to to do. Trying to empty yourself of your own pride and your own concern about your status in the kingdom of God, trying to do that is is as difficult as trying to cut off your own hand or cut off your own foot or pull out your own eye and throw it away, right? We don't want to do that. That sounds painful and, and, and terrible. 
But Jesus says that's the, that's the level of difficulty it is for us to remove our pride from our status in the kingdom of God. Removing ourselves and our need to be first. He says this pride is going to take you, it's going to drag you away from the kingdom of God, and, and you will be cast out if you live in this pride. You're better off removing this pride from yourself as hard as it is as hard as cutting off your hand or your foot or plucking out your own eye. That's how difficult the task of becoming a disciple of Jesus, of following him in that taking up of your cross daily. Right? That's the difficulty of it. Jesus says in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. And he's talking, remember, he's talking about his disciples. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? What he's saying is if you are being a disciple of Jesus is good, but that quality of humility, if you lose that humility, how are you going to become humble again, right? So when it comes to those who are out there who are not part of you and uh, they're out doing things in the name of Jesus, right? You don't worry about them. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. That is, have humility in your own hearts and be at peace with each other. If he's out there doing something, she's out there doing something, that's God's business. It's not yours. Don't be concerned that your status is somehow lowered by what other people are doing. Instead, be joyful that the Lord has chosen you to be even the least of his servants. Because that is to follow Jesus, to become least, is to be great in the kingdom of God. And that's the end of chapter nine, all the way to verse fifty. We're going to pick up in our next. Um, we're going to pick up in our next episode, chapter ten. Today's shout out goes to Lydia. Lydia commented on the Lunch Break Bible Study Facebook page. She said, "Just started listening and really appreciate the linguistic breakdowns." I had a Bible study in my own congregation here yesterday. We were talking about the original languages and how valuable they can be when it comes to understanding the, the actual text and context of the scriptures. Um, translation is a difficult task. Uh, the people that are engaged in it, the people that are doing it, it's a, it's a very very hard thing to do because there's always going to be interpretation wrapped up in that. And my job as somebody who has been taught the original languages, um, I'm, I'm certainly no expert, but my job is to sort of, as one of my professors used to say, there's a difference between watching a game on TV and actually being in the stadium there. And if somebody knows the language, if somebody's skilled in the language, your job is to sort of take the people to the game is to give them sort of the background understanding of what exactly is going on in the language to help them understand better what Jesus is actually saying and doing and what the, what the author, what Mark wants us to know and wants us to experience in his gospel. So thank you very much, Lydia, for the shout out. Uh, thank you for, for tuning in. I hope uh, this message finds you well. Uh, like I said, this is Pastor Frank from Kansas City, Missouri. I'm really excited to uh, be with you today, and I hope you have a blessed day.